Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started on our study this evening in Hebrews, Chapter 13, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the Word. Scripture teaches that uh, when we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. The ongoing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, referred to as the filling of the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, is broken. But when we confess our sins, He forgives us our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and that ongoing forward momentum in the spiritual life uh, resumes. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word, that it is in your word that we understand the issues of life as you have defined them and as you have revealed them to us. Father, we pray that as we study your word, we might focus on what you would have us to have as priorities and in our own lives, and that we might be reminded that you are the one who is in control of the details of life, and you are the one who has the resources to uh, strengthen us in every area of our life, and that when we trust in you, then you make our paths straight, as the proverb says. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we studied and see how they apply in our lives this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 13. Last time we began the chapter, and I pointed out that this is begins a series of commands or exhortations in the third person, or excuse me, in the first person uh, sense, let us. Uh, do such and so. That's a first person uh, command known as a, um, a hortatory subjunctive, or it may be just a basic second person plural or second person singular command. These begin in verse 1, and the primary command in verse 1 was to let brotherly love continue. That is the, I, the sort of the uh, them- thematic statement for these uh, imperatives, these mandates, all the way down through verse 17. Now, we broke this this section into two parts, the first six verses and then verses 7 to 17. You will note that in verse 7 we read, 
remember those who rule over you. And that should be translated, those who ruled over you. The focus is in the past tense. Those who were their leaders, those who were the evangelists and pastors who uh, explained the gospel to them initially when they were saved, when they trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And then once we get down to verse 17, it is a present tense command, obey those who currently rule over you. And so there is a bracketing of these commands in between by these uh, two emphases on the relationship to uh, the leadership. Remember those who rule over you, verse 7. Obey those who rule over over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, in verse 17. Now, I pointed out last time, as we developed our way through verses 7 down through 14, that the emphasis here was, again, on primarily on the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what we've seen all the way through Hebrews. And what we need to remember now, as we bring this of Hebrews to a close, is the focus, focal point of this letter to these Jewish Christians in the first century was to encourage them not to give up, not to fold, not to go back into Judaism, not to give up on uh, the their Christian life because they were encountering some persecution, some opposition, and some rejection. But the idea was to focus on all that we have as believers in Jesus Christ, positionally all that have been provided for us because of the superiority of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice over the uh, sacrifices of the Old Testament, that the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be uh, performed again and again and again. The Day of Atonement was year after year after year, but it only sufficed for a year. Whenever you, we there was a sin, then there had to be a burnt offering or a sin offering, trespass offering again and again and again, that the Mosaic sacrifices, the Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant, that it was designed to teach and illustrate principles related to sin and the necessity of cleansing from sin and the payment of the sin penalty is illustrated in these sacrifices. But all of the sacrifices pointed to a future final sacrifice that would be the complete sacrifice and there would be no need for a subsequent uh, sacrifice. And that was fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and paid the penalty, the complete penalty for sin. So because of that, the writer then in verse 8 shifts to Jesus Christ. The command is to, first of all, to remember those who ruled over you, to look back on how they handled the opposition, how they handled difficulty, stress, adversity in life, so that uh, they would be an example, again, the same ideas we have at the beginning of chapter uh, 12, that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, to remember those who rule over you, who spoke or taught the word of God to you, follow their faith, consider the outcome of their conduct, follow their example. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, I said, is not written here. This statement isn't written as a statement on his immutability, although that is certainly there. It is written to remind the readers that the Jesus Christ, who yesterday was faithful in 
providing stability and hope for the older generation that had now passed from the scene was the same Jesus Christ who in their present circumstances would sustain them and would also sustain them in the future. And then starting in verse 9, there is a shift that begins with a focus on the Old Testament sacrifices, focusing on the fact, for example, in verse 10, that we now have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. It is a spiritual altar. The altar is not a reference to something that's in the front of the church, which that's a statement that always bothered me. In the Roman Catholic Church, of course, they do have an altar up in the front because they have a sacrifice, a literal sacrifice that occurs week after week after week when they uh, celebrate the Mass. What happens when the in the Roman Catholic Church they don't have a communion or the Lord's table as Protestants do, they believe that there is a literal transformation of the elements that occurs uh, when they celebrate Mass. And when the priest... Uh, waves his hand over the bread and over the wine, then it is transformed at a, at a uh, sub, um, at a, at a, at a, and in terms of its very substance below the level of what we observe, it is transformed into the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. Now, on Tuesday night, I referenced, uh, for those of you who are here, I mentioned this Pew Research poll that came out in the last month or so, and they asked about 30 questions of of, of an audience of, of folks that were from different religious backgrounds. There were three or four Buddhists and several atheists and agnostics and two or three uh, Jews and maybe a third of them were Roman Catholic and the rest were Protestant. One of the results is that 40% of the Roman Catholic um, folks who took participated in that survey did not understand that what actually was going on at the front of the church in the, when they went to a Roman Catholic mass was that the bread and the wine was being transformed into the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. I found that just to be amazing. I always find it ironic when I hear of the Roman Catholic Church singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which was written by Martin Luther, who's the father of the Protestant Reformation. But that's the way the Roman Catholic Church has always been. They just sort of co-opt everything and assimilate everything and absorb everything into their system. So it's just a hodgepodge at the the local church level at the cutting edge of their their expansion. So we have... um, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, there really is an altar. This is not biblical. This is the result of the influence of Aristotelian thought into medieval theology. The very term transubstantiation, tran means a change, and substantiation from substance meaning the, the substance of, of, uh, of the elements is transformed. And this, but this is a technical use of the word substance. You think of substance as just matter. And in Aristotelian thought, you had any, everything had substance, which usually wasn't anything you could perceive. And then it had various accidents. The accidents were the things that described the substance, such as its 
height and weight and color and shape and those things were the accidents. So what you see when you look at something, for example, if I hold up a Bible here, all you see are the accidents. You see the color, you see the shape, you see the weight, but you don't see the substance. The substance is something that is only given shape by the accidents. That's why, and so that's at the foundation of Roman Catholic view of the Mass is that the substance is changed, but you don't ever see the substance, you just see the accidents. The accidents don't change. So therefore, you can take the bread and you can take it into the laboratory afterwards, and it's still going to come out looking like bread, but the substance changed. That's where we get our word hocus-pocus, literally, hocus maus corpus was the Latin for this is my body. And in the, you know, the medieval times when people didn't know Latin and they just heard the priest wave his hand over the bread and said, hocus meus corpus, they thought it's, well, it sounds like hocus pocus. And that's where that phrase came from in terms of, of magic. So that's the Roman Catholic view. Then in the Protestant Reformation, they, they struggled with this. It was a, a big struggle. And part of it was, uh, as, um, as much problem as you had with baptism because these ideas of transubstantiation, how you viewed the Lord's table, and baptism were linked to how good a member of the church you were. And if you disagreed with those, with the churches, the Roman Catholic Church's view of these doctrines, then you were a heretic. And if you were a heretic, it wasn't as bad as being a heretic today, because if you were a heretic in the Middle Ages because of the unity of the church and state, you were also a traitor. And so that meant that off with your head, and you were in serious trouble. So what we have is a, the this, this whole doctrine starts to take shape during the Protestant Reformation, and Luther, who started the Reformation, Luther goes from a Roman Catholic view here, let's say over here is a full-blown Protestant view. Luther moves about this far. He gets justification by faith right. We're justified by faith alone, not by works. But his view of, of the Lord's table was called consubstantiation. I always thought it was kind of a con job, but in consubstantiation, the word, the, the Latin prefix or, and preposition con means with, that it's not that the substance is transformed into the body and blood of Christ, but that somehow mystically the body and blood of Christ are with the substance. And so it's, it's kind of a halfway position from the memorial view which we have of the Lord's table and the Roman Catholic view. Those are the uh, polar opposites. So you have the uh, Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation where the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ. Then you have the Lutheran view that the body and blood of Christ are are with the substance in some sense. And then there was the view of John Calvin, which was called the spiritual sacrifice view. And in Calvin's view, there is a mystical presence of Christ at the table. But that's not really defined very well. And you, I see a few people going, huh? yeah, that's probably about right. Um, you just had 
this mystical spiritual presence of Christ at the table. And then Ulrich Zwingli from uh, Zurich, the reformer from Zurich, was the first to clearly articulate a memorial view that there's no presence of Christ in the table. You don't feed on Christ in a mystical or spiritual sense. It is a memorial. Now, there is a significance to the eating of the bread and drinking the cup. The significance is that when you eat something, every human being has the ability to eat. The analogy is that every human being has the ability to believe. And when you eat something, you are making it a part of your life. When you believe something, you're making it a part of your belief system about life. And so eating and drinking were used as an analogy or a picture of belief. And so this is what Jesus meant when he talked metaphorically about uh, eating his body and drinking his flesh. Those who feed on me will have eternal life. He was not talking about it in a literal cannibalistic sense. Neither is he talking about it in a mystical sense. He's merely talking about it in an analogy or an analogical sense. So there's no altar. If you go to a Baptist church, sometimes you go to a Methodist church, you will hear them talk about, come to the altar and pray. When I was in a Baptist church, it used to always bother me because I wanted to know where the altar was. It wasn't the pulpit. But you, you get this, we get this language among Christians that's like holy and a few other words like altar, and we just assign this, uh, you know, twilight zone kind of meaning to them, and nobody ever questions it. And we all have to come to the altar and pray and lay it all upon the altar. And this was very popular terminology in the 19th century, and it sounds all holy and good. But when you start asking, well, what does that mean, and how do you support that from the Bible? Well, things begin to kind of fall apart a little bit. So the only altar that the New Testament talks about is the altar where the sacrifice took place, which was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross when he paid the penalty for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, the antitype or the ultimate picture to which all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed. So when we read in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That is talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the contrast between the bodies of the animals whose blood's brought into the sanctuary, that that had limited efficacy, as I said. It was good for ritual cleansing, but not for spiritual cleansing, as we covered that in chapters 8 and 9. And then in verse 12, the writer says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify or set apart the people with his own blood, or literally it should be by means of his own blood, uh, always understanding that whenever you refer to the blood of Christ, it's just a metaphor for the death of Christ, so we can get a better sense of what that means by saying Jesus also, that he might set apart the people by means of his own death, suffered outside the gate. I went back to Leviticus 16 last time, pointing out that in on the Day of Atonement, the there were two focus focal points of the activity the ritual on the day of atonement one was the sacrifice of one of the goats two goats were taken the sacrifice of one had his blood uh, splattered on the 
Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, and the other one had uh, both both uh, goats were identified with the sin of the nation when the high priest put his hands upon uh, the goats. The one was sacrificed. He pays the penalty. The other one is taken out and released into the wilderness, depicting the complete removal of that sin. It's no longer brought up. It's no longer an issue. Uh, scripture says as far as the east is from the west, God has separated our sins from us. And that's that picture that that one goat is taken out into the wilderness as far, far away as he can be taken, and he's released so he can't find his way back. And then afterward, the um, the flesh and the everything left of these the animals, uh, the, the the goat that was sacrificed is taken outside of the outside of the camp where it is all burned completely, and then the one the priest who performs that action had to be completely bathed, put on clean clothes, and he comes back uh, into the camp. So that's the picture that is being used here is that Jesus also was sacrificed outside the camp so that the people could be uh, could be sanctified. He suffered outside the gate, and I showed you the map of the, where the where Golgotha was located, that it was outside of the wall that existed at that time. Then we have a conclusion. Verse 13, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. The challenge to the audience that he's writing to is you need to stay separate from uh, the, the legalistic religions of the world, focus on following Jesus. Same thing he said earlier in uh, the beginning of chapter 12, the keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. In verse 15, or verse 14, rather, what he says is, for, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So now he connects it to the future hope of the believer. When we began Hebrews, I said that this is all about uh, focusing on the fact that Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins, the one who satisfied the Father, that he is now with the Father, but he is coming back. And when he comes back, he will establish his kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him. And so we need to keep our focus upon the, the end game. We are being trained for something. We are being prepared to serve with him uh, in the administration of his kingdom. Verse 15, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. This is where we begin this evening. Therefore, by him, indicating that, again, we have another uh, another conclusion. This is the third, therefore, the third conclusion in these uh, four verses, 12 th- therefore in verse 12, therefore in verse 13, and a therefore in verse 15, each conclusion building upon what we have studied before. Therefore, by him, that is by Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the the high priest of the church age. He is our high priest. He has gone into heaven where he is seated with the Father. He is the one who performed the uh, eternal sacrifice on the cross. So it is by virtue of his work on the cross, his completed payment for sin, and his presence now as our high priest with the Father, 
that we have access to him. Back in Hebrews uh, 4.12, therefore we come boldly before the throne of grace because of his completed work on the cross. So here we begin, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now what we see in verse 15 is gratitude to God and praise to him is a form of sacrifice. We normally think of the word sacrifice as a literal sense in terms of taking the life of a uh, of an animal in terms of that kind of an offering. But what we find also in the Old Testament as well as in the New, for this terminology is taken right out of the Old Testament, what we have is a clear understanding that the concept of sacrifice is not limited to taking the life of an animal or taking the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes because we speak of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we elevate the term so much that when we apply it to other things, some people think, well, that's trivializing the term, but that's not what we have here in Scripture. The Scripture uses uh, the, the Greek word thusia for sacrifice to apply to the sacrifice of uh, praise, which is related to uh, related to gratitude. So the basic command here is let us offer. That's the basic command. It's the Greek word uh, on a pharaoh. It's the uh, present active subjunctive, which means it's it's like a um, it's a strong first person command where the author includes himself uh, in the command, and it means to bring something up, to raise it up, to uh, offer it up. And so the idea here is let us continually offer this. It's uh, the word pharaoh, the ver- Hebrew verb pharaoh was often used back in Hebrews 8 and 9 in relation to offering up sacrifices. So here it's on a pharaoh. Let us continually offer up um, the sacrifice of, prayer, uh, of praise to God. Just a note about the word sacrifice, the Greek word it just means the same thing the English word does. It means a sacrifice. It's a rather broad term. It's used to refer to both uh, pagan sacrifices as well as Old Testament sacrifices as well as the sacrifice uh, of Christ on the cross. A sacrifice is defined as the act of giving up something of value for the sake of something that is of greater value or importance. Now, sometimes in life, when we give up something for something, for example, a parent gives up time and money and other things in order to raise their children and in order to take care of them, and if they have health problems, they give up much more than that, but they don't think of it as a, as a burden. Well, this term sacrifice does not have as part of, it, of its core lexical meaning the idea of something that is burdensome or that, oh, gee, I'm sacrificing something. It just simply means that you're doing one thing of value, of greater value in place of something that usually would have been uh, contributed more uh, to something of personal value. And so that we're giving up one thing in order to do something else. And that's what we do through life. There's always trade-offs. We, instead of doing one thing for ourselves, we're doing something for someone else. And we do it because we want to. We do it because of the uh, transformation that has occurred in our character as we grow and mature as believers. So a th- th- thusia is simply an act 
of sacrifice or sometimes it's used for an offering, giving something to God, uh, giving something of value to the church or to a missionary organization, something of that nature. But here it is linked to the word uh, anasis, anasis, which is spelled A-I-N-E-S-I-S, and this is the only time in the New Testament we have this noun, and it means praise. A verb form is used a few times, and the verb is, means to express gratitude, uh, to express, express respect or admiration or gratitude towards God. So if you want to know what praise is, praise is the expression of gratitude to God. It's the expression of admiration or respect to God. Uh, for what he has done. And so when we read, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, it is simply emphasizing the fact of giving God the respect and honor for what he does in our life instead of taking credit for it ourselves. That's simply what it means. Unfortunately, this um, uh, the fruit of our lips, praise of our lips, kind of verbiage that we get out of Scripture is often abused in a lot of churches, just as the word charismatic is abused and holy is abused. Satan is always trying to steal good biblical words and give them some kind of different meaning, and then this spins off in terms of some kind of new uh, Christian sect or Christian group, and those words get lost because they get attached to some sort of uh, odd, odd behavior. And the sacrifice of praise to God is simply recognizing that God gets the credit for what God does in our life, and we don't take the credit for it. And we express our gratitude and our thanks to God for what he has done and what he has provided for us. And that this is expressed audibly in why it is called, in the next phrase, the fruit of our lips. This is an appositional phrase that defines what the sacrifice of praise is. It is something that is stated. It is not something that is simply quietly acknowledged in silent prayer, but something that when we are in conversation with people or we are in certain kinds of settings with other believers where we can express verbally and audibly our thanks, our gratitude to God, uh, for what he has done for us. And then this is further expanded in the next phrase, giving thanks to his name. And the phrase there for giving thanks is a, a, a participial clause, a participial clause that is, that is really, uh, uh defines, uh, in, is def- related instrumentally to the main verb, which is let us offer. We let uh, let us offer by, and it's not giving thanks. That word's not there. It's a word that some of you've heard many, many times. It's the Greek word homologeo, which means to confess, to acknowledge, to admit something. And so what, what he is saying is, therefore, by him, that is by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, by acknowledging his name by acknowledging his name. And whenever we uh, read something of this nature related to his name, that always relates to his character and folk, bringing the focal point in any uh, situation or circumstance back to the fact that it is uh, God and his character of love and grace 
that has uh, provided this for us. Now, in terms of just breaking down the meaning of the text, we've done that, but these ideas come from some other places uh, in the scriptures. You can imagine as many allusions as there are to the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews is constantly connecting Old Testament doctrine, Old Testament practices to the, and he's comparing and contrasting them to what we have in the church age and the body of Christ. And so he's drawing out the fact that there is a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. In Leviticus 7.12, we have similar language. There we're told about the uh, Thanksgiving offering, and we read, if he offers it for a Thanksgiving then he shall offer with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's our terminology, a sacrifice related to thanksgiving. Now, this involved a literal animal sacrifice, but it is a thanksgiving offering, express, or thank offering expressing gratitude to God. So it talks about the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the unleavened uh, cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, uh, etc. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that we've moved beyond literal animal sacrifices or grain offerings to express thanks to now what we have is a sacrifice that is expressed verbally and audibly with our lips because the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the Levitical offerings found their completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have another uh, similar phrase in Hosea chapter 14, verse 2, which reads, uh, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away, that is saying to God, Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. And so the idea of a sacrifice being related to simply the expression of praise to God is one that finds its source as far back as Leviticus 7, carries through into the um, period of the uh, just before the exile in Hosea chapter 14 and on into the New Testament. So again and again, the scripture recognizes that just audibly expressing our gratitude and our praise to God is part is identified as a uh, as a sacrifice. Then again, we also have another Old Testament passage in Psalm 54, 6, where the psalmist says, I will praise, which in the context indicates confession, I will praise or confess or admit or acknowledge your name, O Lord. So we have that kind of phrase several times in the Old Testament. So the writer is making this shift here. He says, now, therefore, by Christ, drawing that contrast between the new covenant sacrifice, old covenant sacrifices, new covenant sacrifice, completed in Christ, old covenant, still repetitive with the various animal sacrifices, grain offerings, things of that nature. Therefore, by him, by virtue of Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips by acknowledging his name, that is admitting, acknowledging, talking about what God has done in our life. In contrast, we're told to not do something in verse 16. We are not to forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So in verse 15, there's a focus on the sacrifice of praise, 
And in verse 16, there's the two sacrifices, doing good and sharing. Now, all of this has must be understood within the background of John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. This now becomes the primary ethic for the spiritual life. When I break down the spiritual life into spiritual infancy and childhood and spiritual adulthood, one of the key elements that becomes clear is when we get into the more advanced uh, spiritual skills and we talk about impersonal love for all mankind, impersonal love for God, and occupation with Christ, those three all focus on developing our love and our focus for the Godhead. And as a result of that, as that matures, and while that is maturing, we experience greater and greater uh, happiness and meaning in life as we are focusing on um, on the end game and being prepared for our uh, future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this still comes back to the idea of expressing what is stated in verse 1 of this chapter, to let brotherly love uh, continue. So it's expressed in two categories. That is, love is expressed in two categories in the, in the New Testament, love for God and love for others. And we see, we'll see this when we get into our study in Acts at the very beginning. In Acts 2.42, after Peter's uh, first uh, sermon there on the day of Pentecost, and um, he has a huge response, and the church begins to grow in the days afterward. And then Luke writes in verse 42, and they continued, that is, all of these new believers continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, those two things. It looks like four things because it says apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. But the way it's punctuated, breaking of bread and prayer describes fellowship, fellowship towards God. Breaking of bread is in communion, and prayer is also in communion. I mean, also in part of our fellowship with God. So we have two basic elements. They're devoted to the uh, teaching of the apostles and fellowship with God. That is the expression of love for God. We learn his word. We learn what he has to say to us because that's important. It teaches us how to think correctly about everything in life, and that's the only way we can have real happiness and real stability. Then in Acts chapter 4, we see another dimension to this as it begins to work itself out in the infant church as they now begin to share with one another, not in a socialistic sense, but it's motivated by each individual's volition. That's the difference between socialism and the kind of uh, communal sharing that you have in the early part of Acts, is in socialism, somebody like the government comes along and dictates how much you should give and who you should give it to, and then it's redistributed to people who, who didn't work. But the Bible has, the New Testament has no place for those who don't work. At the end of First uh, Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians, rather, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat, period. Uh, there's no idea of sharing there in terms of uh, some uh, higher authority like a church authority saying, okay, you need to give 20%, and then we're going to take part of it and give it over here because these poor people didn't quite achieve as much. That is not biblical love. That is just That is sort of an anti-love. You know, like in science fiction, you have matter and antimatter. Well, that's that socialism is really anti-love. It's a pseudo-love. 
And all it does is it builds uh, a lot of antagonism uh, within any culture with, in which it is it is it operates. So the early church it's motivated by uh, by their um, their individual volition. Now we're going to see this some on Sunday mornings when we get into the breakdown of uh, of the culture in Judaism. Because when we see what happens in uh, with Isaiah and with Jeremiah as they condemn the nation for not taking care of the widows and not taking care of the poor, the condemnation isn't directed to the government. The condemnation is directed to the people because it's not the never was the government's responsibility under the Old Testament to take care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. Now they had a a very shallow safety net uh, in the mosaic in the mosaic law that once every three years ten percent off uh, a tithe was taken and that was used to provide a safety net a little bit of sustenance for the widows uh, widows and orphans but what Isaiah and Jeremiah are talking about is not the social gospel or social justice which is just a code word for Marxism. What uh, Isaiah and Amos and uh, Jeremiah and the other prophets are doing is they're telling the people that they're just a bunch of self-absorbed, selfish, greedy individuals who aren't doing anything to help those who are in need in their culture. It's not coming out of their own volition. The issue isn't government doing it. It's people doing it. And once you start letting the government step in and do it, then people can absolve themselves of their own responsibility for taking care of those who are less fortunate. And so the responsibility gets shifted away uh, to somebody else, and the buck gets passed to government. And government never can do anything efficiently or well, and we're seeing a lot of examples of that today. So rather than giving you examples, just watch the news for the next week. Um, so in Acts 4.32, we see love for others, love for God in Acts 2.42, love for others in Acts 4.32. And so th- this is what is emphasized in these verses. We are not to forget to do good and to share. And that is exactly what the text says, that by doing good and uh, sharing, this pleases God. This is an anthropopathism, meaning that this is what has a value according to the character of God. The word that is translated doing good is a Greek word, oipoia, which means to, it's more than doing good, it is rendering service to others. You know, that's something that just seems to get downplayed so much today. But the importance of Christian service, not just within the local church, but in helping other believers, uh, you know, we have, and we, I think we do a good job. We can always do a better job. But I know that there are people who are shut-ins, people who face uh, problems when they have to go to the doctor, they can't drive, things of that nature, and they need to be taken. Uh, there are uh, several people that I know of that watch via live stream all the time who have never walked through the doors of this church because they are unable to get out and go to church or go to Bible class, and yet they are associate members of the church and they are faith, faithfully watch. And yet I'm sure that there may be some physical, uh, maybe some financial needs that are there, and that's part of Christian service, is serving others in the body of Christ and putting others first. So that's the idea in oipoia. 
Uh, it is doing well towards others, not just good deeds, but serving others in the body of Christ. And then the word, the other word translated to share is the word koinonia, which has to do with a close association or uh, the attitude of, of uh, the idea of fellowship or generosity towards others. It's the idea of developing a close uh, relationship with other people and understanding who they are and knowing them, that the body of Christ isn't just a bunch of little atoms, little people, not Adam, A-D-A-M, but Adam, A-T-O-M, uh, not a bunch of little atoms that just coincidentally, uh, you know, sort of ricochet off of each other three times a week. Uh, the body of Christ is a personal interaction. Go back and listen to what I taught on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again and again and again, Paul says we are members of one another. There is this mutual interaction within the body of Christ. We are to be involved in each other's lives, not everybody, and not to the same depth of intimacy uh, that we have uh, in every case. There are some people we're going to be close to, some people we're not going to be close to. There are some people that we have time to be close to, other people we don't have the time and opportunity to be close to, but we are to be involved in the lives of other believers, and there is to be this mutuality of ministry that takes place as we uh, take care of them in terms of, of this uh, association of koinonia, uh, fellowship and in- interaction, as well as serving one another. And the scripture says, don't forget to do this. Why? Because it's easy to get caught up in our own lives and in the details of our own lives and the busyness of our schedules and to all of a sudden wake up two years later and say, I've been meaning to get together for lunch with that person or I've been meaning to go out and to give them a call and just go over and see if there's anything I can do for them. And next thing you know, three years went by. So it's, it's very easy for that to take place. So we are to not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then the last verse here states, obey those who rule over you or who lead you is actually a better way to translate it. I always have a tendency to focus on these passages, for example, the passages related to husbands and wives, uh, wives su- submit to your husbands, uh, husbands love your wives, and, and I tend to focus on it more in terms of leadership than in terms of simply obedience. Uh, when you focus on obedience, as so many people do, Often it comes across as just sort of autocratic tyranny. But men have to lead in the home. The leaders of the church have to be leaders, not just dictators. And you, I've never figured this out, but why it is that in local churches, they always seem to attract people who want to create their own little fiefdom so that they can somehow exercise power over other people. Why don't they just go start a good business and contribute to the uh, uh, profitability of the whole country, and then they have employees they can lord it over instead of coming to a volunteer organization and trying to uh, browbeat a bunch of other believers. Uh, so unfortunately, that happens, and I can tell you horror stories about what happens in many different churches. I know of one church, you do too, but we won't mention any names, where uh, uh, 
Someone who is a close friend of this congregation took over this congregation a few years ago, and he was left with a bunch of folks in that congregation who really didn't want him as their pastor. And it took about three or four years to finally encourage them to go somewhere else and for them to take the hint. But in the meantime, there was a lot of tumult in that church. He was fortunate because things worked out well, and God uh, work things out well for him. My first church was sort of the uh, poster child of the dysfunctional church. They put the dis in dysfunctional. And it was one of these uh, um, sort of ecumenical type churches that had been around since the late 19th century, and it was located down near Galveston. And uh, there was just a, uh, a situation there where there, there was this uh, uh, coterie of older people in that church that didn't ever want to let the let loose of the reins of authority and go to the next generation. And they had had one pastor who had been able to keep uh, the lid on their arrogant rebelliousness for for many years. And when he retired after 40 years of being their pastor, about 10 years before I became their pastor, he um, he left the area. He came back later on. He was a great guy. He didn't. He, in fact, he kept the lid on the problem I had for a long time until the Lord took him home. But from the time he retired until the time I came, the church had split like three times in a decade. That's just sort of a clue there. But things were kind of being were being cleaned up, um, and eventually, those who were going in the right direction, that church just ended up leaving and starting a new church rather than fighting uh, the old crowd. But the problem here is not ruling, it's leadership. And so often you don't get men in uh, positions as deacons or elders who know anything about leadership. We have great men in this congregation. I have been privileged in the last 12 years to have served in two churches with tremendous uh, boards and men who really understood, uh, really understood leadership and how to lead a congregation. And those who are in the congregation are to follow their leadership. And if they don't want to, then they should just quietly go find a church where they can submit to the leadership and where they can be happy rather than trying to cause, you know, a big dust up and split in the church just because things aren't being done uh, the way they want them to. There's only one vision in any congregation that matters, and that's the vision of the pastor. Uh, you can't have one of these boards where everybody's equal and you have four or five competing visions. That just leads to all kinds of fragmentation. There's only one vision that matters, and that's if God has put a man in the position of pastor-teacher in that local congregation, his vision is the one that matters. And if people want to follow him, great. If they don't, that's also great. But you don't start a rebellion in order to get uh, your way. So this is one of those strong passages on leadership in the local church. Obey those who lead you and be submissive. Why? Because they watch out for your souls. They have a God-given responsibility that they take very seriously to watch over the spiritual life of those in the congregation. Peter calls them calls us under-shepherds. The over-shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a uh, a boss that we're answerable to. And that's what the next phrase points out, as those who must give account. Those who are in leadership position in a local church must give an account and eventually will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for how well 
they led the church according to Scripture. So then the statement is made, the next command, let them do so with joy and not with grief. Nothing is tougher for a pastor than to get in the congregation and look out and say, Lord, why don't you just move those ten people away? Uh, you go home and you're just, you're, you, that grief is a great word for it. You're just sad because you know the next morning the phone's going to ring and you're going to have to deal with some, uh, some rebellious sheep that just got some petty problem that wants you to solve because they don't understand anything and they think they ought to be the center of attention. And when that goes on for 5, 10, 15, or 20 years without uh, pastoral leadership uh, dealing with it, then you have major problems. So the scripture emphasizes that the leaders should be leading with joy. Don't be, don't be a pain. Okay, there, there, there's an interesting little disease out there that was first identified by the Romans in the second century BC. And it is sort of a, it is a muscle spasm. They're not really sure that it's that, that nobody knows what it is. It's a muscle spasm in the rear end which is why they, the first term for this disease is proctalgia. The second term is fujax, which means they don't know what it is. So it's an unexplained pain in the rear. Now, I just thought about it last night, and I thought, you know, that would be a great nickname for a number of people I could think of, an unexplained pain in the rear. And there are a lot of these in local churches, and we don't want them, don't. Let the leaders rule with grief, but let them rule with joy. Uh, don't let, the, let, um, let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That means this is a detriment to your spiritual life when you become a proctalgia fugax in the eyes of the Lord. All right, next time we'll come back. It's a good stopping point. We'll come back in verse 18 where we begin the final um, uh, close of the book. The writer gives some parting instructions and analysis. And so next time we'll come, we'll close out the book of Hebrews and then begin to do a final flyover to sort of summarize all the things that we have learned. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, for this opportunity to um, focus on the things, the ultimate priorities that should characterize our lives as believers and our lives as a congregation as we um, love, uh, love the brethren, love others in the body of Christ, and we demonstrate the love of Christ in the way we relate to one another. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.